0: Thank you, Nathan, for putting together that video to intro this series. This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. We'll be reading select passages today from each of those chapters. But this sermon series over the next three weeks is on biblical justice. The reality that faces each one of us is conversations about justice today. It's a talking point on the news. It's a talking point at the family table. It's a talking point in neighborhood conversations. This talk about justice pervades the conversation today, and it's good that it does. But what's unfortunate is that we often are allowed in conversations about justice to divide us. We're allowing conversations about justice to make us angry or to shut down We're allowing conversations about justice to do anything about other than what they ought to do, which is drive us squarely to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about justice, but this issue of biblical justice is prevalent throughout all of the pages of Scripture. And while you may think that biblical justice has little to do with the conversation today, those civil rights heroes of our faith would disagree. Those that walked before us fighting for those things of justice that we celebrate today, those things that were earned and fought for, those things were conversations of faith. And we have lost that way. We have lost that voice. And part of it is because of the way that we speak about these things. Part of it is because we have lost the ability to speak in a winsome way with those with whom we disagree. We've lost our way to be able to take a conversation, to be spoken to maybe in a way that points us in an ulterior way, an alternate route that would take us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in a winsome way to say, actually, I think that all of those points that you just made actually point us right back to the gospel, and let me show you how. Well, today, I wanna open by quoting from a fellow New Orleanian, Professor Francis Gurrier. He's the assistant professor of American Studies and History at Kenyon College in Ohio, but he lives here in New Orleans. He was a guest columnist this week in the Times-Picayune this week, honoring the birthday of civil rights activist Rosa Parks who would have been 109 years old on Friday. He writes, Every year we are bombarded with one-dimensional tributes that commend her 1955 bus protest, a polite no to segregation that triggered a mass movement for racial justice. With such a flat depiction, it's no wonder that her legacy is often misappropriated by bad-faith actors. The truth is, Parks always had a fiery spirit and a radical political orientation. Her aim was to uproot inequality, not soften its impact. She knew that society's ills were systemic, meaning they wouldn't be resolved just by standing up to a mean white bus driver. When inequalities are systemic, they are tied to other, often hidden parts of our lives, making it impossible to remedy through quick solutions. Rosa Parks knew that in 1955, and she knew that in 1994 when she was mugged in her own home. In 1994, Joseph Skipper broke into Parks' Detroit apartment, physically assaulted her, and robbed her of her money. When police apprehended him, she insisted that the public not simply view Skipper as the problem. Instead, she wanted officials to address the conditions that have made him this way. In this sense, addressing the root of the problem might prevent muggings from happenings. Gurrier goes on to write, to Parks, this seemed a better way to keep the public safe as opposed to responding to mugging after it had been committed. Now, I deeply appreciate this thoughtful reflection on Rosa Parks, especially with February being Black History Month. I deeply appreciate how Gurrier captures the conviction of Rosa Parks that underlying the behaviors of people are root causes. I also appreciate that Gurrier warns against quick quick fix solutions to systemic issues. Essentially, this warning holds that human beings are complex beings made up of many parts. All the parts the relationships, biological makeup, early childhood development, economic background, educational background, trauma, neighborhood, family dynamics, and so much more make up the whole person but Gurier concludes his piece with a conclusion in answering a question that he poses, what are the conditions that make people harm and threaten others, he answers the questions this way. Social scientists have studied this for well over a century now, and it's exclusion, exploitation, and extraction that are the cause. Now, as a Christian, how do we respond to such observations and conclusions such as Gurrier's piece? Now, some of you might say, well, that's just one person's opinion. Well, the newspaper doesn't usually feature opinion pieces, that they think everybody is going to reject, but instead they anticipate many will affirm and many will reject. That's what it makes both sides read it. Unfortunately, it is often Christians who chide men like Gurrier and say, you just need Jesus. Now that sounds like incredible faith, But peeled open what you often find behind quips like these are hearts that are actually saying, I wish everybody would just shut up and toughen up. My life is hard and you don't hear me complaining about it. Now others, when they say you just need Jesus, are truly holding out hope that Jesus is the way and Jesus is the truth and Jesus is the life. But I want to reinforce today from a passage that is as foundational to our faith as any other passage of Scripture that ours is not a simplistic faith. And it does acknowledge the whole person, it does truly address the full person and the full root of any person's malady and the maladies of our day, including injustice. And to demonstrate how thoroughly sufficient the scriptures are, we will demonstrate using the language that Gurrier recites of social scientists that identify as the root of our suffering, these social ills, and instead say, no, these things point exactly to scripture. So today, I want you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to take us through chapters 1, 2, and 3, reading select passages. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and I want you to follow along as I read aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to watch over it and to work to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then down to chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Father, I pray that today, through the reading of your word, that we will be able to give thoughtful, full response Grounded in your word to those who are asking asking truthful, good questions, who are wondering, even in our own city right now where crime is concerned, what do we do? How do we respond? That we would not be like those who quickly dismiss the careful insights and research of others, but instead we would recognize that we are able in a way that clings to your word, not walks away from it, to respond in a full way to the fullness of humanity. Lord, thank you. You are good, and your word is good. May we cling to it all the more today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Exclusion, exploitation, and extraction These are our three points today. As we look at the biblical narrative, as we consider these insights from social scientists about why people do some of the very things that they do, that we would look at today and say, that is not good, that is harmful, that is causing corruption and all kinds of fighting in our culture. This is not acceptable. Well, let's look first at exclusion exclusion. What social scientists mean with the word exclusion is excluding people based on race, gender, age, status, sexual orientation, and so on. We need to acknowledge as believers that unjust exclusion is certainly a problem, not only in the United States, but globally. You look around the world and you see the exclusion of certain people groups the Unger people group and the treatment that they are receiving is unjust. You look around and you see specific pockets of individuals isolated and treated differently because of the color of their skin, because of the, the tribe from which they hail. All of these things, you look around globally and you see forms of injustice. But at some point, we need to all acknowledge that we each practice exclusion. You see, if I claim to value inclusion, and so therefore I reject anyone who practices exclusion, then I am practicing exclusion in favor of inclusion. You see how that works. We're we're practicing exclusion all the time, and even those who would say exclusion is bad are practicing it in order to exclude those who hold to exclusion. But let's just be honest with ourselves here in the church house today is the fact that we have begun to exclude one another in ways that are unbiblical. We're allowing things, I mean, every day, every day I read articles and see news pieces about vaccination and masks. Let's just talk about it. Vaccination and mask. Whether to be vaccinated or not, whether to wear a mask or not. And that division has come squarely into the church to where rhetoric, like, if you get vaccinated, you're not a Christian. You've bowed to the government, you worship Caesar. The same thing. Vaccination then becomes the talking about if you don't get vaccinated, then you don't love your neighbor. And you want to see everyone die because of this. And so we have made salvific the issue of a vaccination. I want you to notice how we're allowing things like a vaccination, things like mask, things like political party, issues like abortion, Those sorts of issues to be these divisive points rather than acknowledging that people are coming from different backgrounds. People are coming with a different worldview many times and that is not to say that there is not truth to behold. That there isn't a right or wrong in each one of those categories that we just spoke about. But the way that we are treating one another as believers over these issues is damaging our witness, and it is destroying our faith. We are making our faith more about those issues than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are practicing exclusion on things that Jesus never spoke to, that he never called us to exclude one another over. But there are things, there are things that are exclusive in the scriptures. And exclusive in Genesis 1 is this, God created the heavens and the earth. You want to know who held to that truth? Rosa Parks. You want to know who held to that truth? Martin Luther King Jr. You see, lost from the conversation today is the faith that especially the black church has held for generations in the face of great opposition. As I'm reading some of the original works, the narrative of Frederick Douglass, and reading how many white believers in the South used religion as a grounds to advocate for slavery, to advocate for beating and killing slaves. It is a mystery. It is a wonder that the gospel was, with, was preserved in the United States. But often we give credit to the white church for holding to the mystery of the gospel When I look back at those pages, what I see is the black church holding to the mystery of the gospel in the face of great opposition. You see, Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks was one who held to her faith from childhood on. She was one who believed in the goodness of Jesus Christ from her nine-year-old conversion. She believed in the power of God's goodness through tonsil infection after tonsil infection after tonsil infection as a child that had her laid up for months at a time. She believed that the goodness of Jesus Christ could invade any human heart, including that of a mean white bus driver, and change anyone. She believed in the power of the gospel because she held that God was the creator of the heavens and the earth. You see, exclusive to the Bible is this, God is creator. But God, the exclusive God who created all things in his grace, even though he has an exclusive position of God alone, he includes humanity into his creation. He brings them in, and then he shares the goodness of his creation, the garden of Eden, the fruit of every tree, even the tree of life. And in his grace, he warns them that they must, in order to thrive, exclude from their diet the knowledge, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says it is right and good for you to exclude that tree but include the tree of life in your diet. We look and we see this exclusion pointing us to something about God. You see, it was exclusion of God's word that was right at the scene where sin entered into humanity. You see, it was exclusion of what God had actually said that when you eat of the tree, then you will surely die. Notice that Eve had added to it that if you eat of it or even touch it, you'll die. Notice she touches it and she doesn't die. So what does that lead the mind to believe? Well, I didn't die when I touched it, and I guess I may not die when I eat it. And so she does a little formula to figure out, and she takes the fruit and she eats it, and in that moment of biting into the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, of the good, of good and evil, she excludes the warning of God. She excludes the goodness of God. In reality, she excludes God. God is no longer part of her thinking. I doubt that in her mind was, if I eat of this tree, I will also exclude myself from the tree of life. I'm sure she's thinking I can have them both. Tree of life, tree of knowledge, and be like God myself. We know how Satan takes, tempts her, but we don't know the fullness of what was going on in her mind, but we see the fruit of what she did in her bite. Exclusion. Exclusion starts there, and then exclusion spreads through the pages of Scripture, excluding God's Word again and again and again from conversations about what life ought to look like. Excluding God's word again from how we treat one another. Excluding God's word again and again and again about how we are to walk with God. What God expects, how he calls us to live in our marriages and in our families and in our relationship to one another and our business dealings. Excluding God's word over and over and over again. So when the social scientist says to me, exclusion is an issue, I say amen. But it's not simply enough to look at those who are, ex- who are ex- uh, ex- ex- displaying exclusionary behavior and to say, that's the problem. You see, Rosa Parks refused to do that in 1994. She looked at a man who was excluding the law from his living, broke into her home and took her money. And she could have said, men like that are the problem. Get rid of men like that, you get rid of the problem. But that's not what she did. She acknowledged that there was something deeper. There was something deeper. And we can acknowledge that there's something deeper. Now, does that mean that none of the other issues that social scientists are pointing out exist? No. But it is work to dig. It is work to dig. One of the most bonding things that I ever experienced in my life was when I worked for a year in a ministry center for troubled teenagers. It was basically a Christian alternative to juvenile detention. It's where Cole and I spent our first year of marriage. And any time that a kid did the wrong thing, the discipline was this. You had to do work hours. So if you cussed out somebody, you had to do work hours. If you stole, you had to do work hours. And those work hours were manual labor. But those who were dishing out the manual labor that the consequence did the consequence with the kid. So the boys, we often dug stumps. That's what we had to do. A tree would have already been felled and there lay its stump. And so then you had to do the hard work of digging that stump out. And my little brother, his name was Andrew. Andrew and I had not yet bonded. I was assigned to him. He was assigned to me. Didn't really like each other all that much Probably. But we were assigned to having to do this work together. And so we start digging and we start digging and we start digging together. And then finally, when we get down to where the root is, I mean, the deepest part of the root, and we start working on it together and then finally get it out. We were hugging. We had bonded because we had together gotten to the root. And I am telling you on the authority of God's word, we've got to dig together We've got to get down to the root. And when we do, when we take seriously that there are root issues and we stop just dismissing each other in a flippant way, not listening, not acknowledging the social scientists, not acknowledging the biologists, not acknowledging the psychologists, just dismissing them but saying, I think you've made a point, but I think there's something deeper. And I don't just think it, I know it because God's words reveals it. I'm telling you, God's word acknowledges these things on the way and we can have civilized and meaningful conversations on the way to the real root cause. And we see it here, exclusion of God being at the root of an issue. When a culture excludes God, when a culture excludes God, but no, when Christians exclude God. Now that's a shame. When Christians exclude God, now, that is a shame. Exclusion, exploitation, using God's gifts for selfish gain. You see, what social scientists mean with the word exploitation is using people and systems for selfish gain that often harms other people. In other words, you get ahead by those you step on. We need to acknowledge as believers that exploitation is certainly a problem, not only in the United States, but globally. But at some point, we need to acknowledge that we all practice exploitation. And I'm going to tell on the pastor for a moment. You see, pastors are guilty, speaking honestly, of exploiting the sinfulness of certain groups. For example, the LGBTQ plus community, in order to get an amen out of a sermon. We cry out about unjust laws and agendas of the LGBTQ plus advocacy groups while doing nothing to minister to the LGBTQ plus community, doing nothing to understand this community, doing nothing to equip the church to bring the gospel of grace to these communities. We just simply exploit their sin, all the while turning a blind eye to the sins of gossip, hatred, idolatry, impurity, lust, and more. Is practicing homosexuality sin? Yes. Is withholding the gospel from those who Jesus came to save sin? Yes. Which is the greater offense in this room today? That question haunts me. Which is the greater offense in this room today? Practicing homosexuality? or withholding the gospel. Far too long, pastors have gotten easy amens and have not done the hard work of plowing, the hard work of equipping, the hard hard work of going into those places where Jesus spent his time. Extraction, taking God out of the garden. You see, I could go back real fast to exploitation, and you can look and see how exploitation takes us right back into the garden. You see, God had given good gifts to mankind, He had given good gifts of the tree of life, and then in His goodness, He had given specific instruction about a tree that would produce death. But in order to get ahead, There was the exploitation of God's gift. You see, he had had put the trees there. Whose trees are they? They're God's. God in his goodness shared his garden with people. He shared the fruit of his trees. But rather than acknowledging, that's his tree. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil belongs to God and God alone. There was the exploitation, this attempt to get ahead. But ahead of who? Who? Who is she competing with? Who are they competing with? They're trying to get ahead of God or equal with them. And to try to get equal with them is to do away with God, is to exploit his goodness. And we can look and say, you know what, to the social scientists, exploitation is right. We see it all around us. We see it in us. And we are honest. If we're honest in the church, we exploit the sins of others in order to do rallying Christ and to get donations and to make our ministries bigger and to get a larger audience. But the real exploitation that we see that started it all was this exploitation of the good gift of God of life, the good gift of God of a tree of life. But we'll see in a moment that that tree returns. Exploitation and then extraction. You see, in this moment that we look at in the garden, what we see is this functional extracting God out of the garden. It's almost as if Adam and Eve are ready to replace God in the garden. Satan has baited them. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then then you'll be like God. And it's almost as if they have bought into this notion that we could replace him. Extracting God the very being who brought it all into existence and upholds it with the word of his mouth. Extraction. You see, God's word calls us to extraction. Even within the church, you say, what are you talking about, Chad? You turn over to the pages of the New Testament and what you behold is that God in grace is dealing with those who are within the church who say, I'm part of the church, but I persist in sin. That person is to be dealt with one-on-one. Won't listen to that one, then take two with you. Won't listen to that group of two or three, then bring it to the church. And if that person won't listen to the church, then you extract them. But why is that? Why is that? Is that just so that we can have a superiority over those who aren't like us? No. Paul makes so clear that that extraction moment is only, only to serve the purpose of reconciliation, first unto God and then unto the body. And then, even when we see Jesus in Matthew 18 calling the church to to treat them as you would an outsider, a Gentile, we then behold in the Gospels that he has made the Gospel available to the Gentiles. So what is he saying? Treat them as someone who needs me. It's not about just banishing them and treating them wrong. It's about bringing the Gospel of good news to them. It's about bringing this Gospel of grace and truth to them. You see, everywhere we turn, we are called to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. And that includes... Those who maybe just even formally in your own life, you thought were with you in the life of the church. Just a moment ago, it seemed like they were right beside you, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. But now they're gone. How do we treat those who we thought just a moment ago were with us, but now they no longer seem to be with us? This idea of extraction It comes full circle in the gospel of peace. We are called to demonstrate the greatest love and generosity to those who are the farthest from Christ. And so love is to manifest in every part of our lives. But extraction, extraction. You see, when the social scientist says that extraction, taking a person out of their place, out of their community, and then placing them in some other place is not good. It results in chaos and trauma, all of these things. I look back at the story of the garden and I say, you're right. Because when Adam and Eve, who knew perfect relationship with God, extracted God from the garden, it actually resulted in them being extracted from the garden. And then once away from the goodness of God's provision, the protection of his presence, the ability to walk with him, nothing but chaos ensued. I mean, that's all the Old Testament kind of reveals is all of these incidents of extraction, all of these incidents of exploitation, all of these incidents of exclusion in ways that God did not call for exclusion. All we see in the pages of scripture is sin running rampant and and, and that sin being rampant among the people of God. Not to even speak of those surrounding communities that knew nothing of him. But God, who is rich in mercy, at just the right time, sent his son, born of a virgin, to come into an unjust world in order to bring justice. God, who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, God, who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus who, says, Jesus, who Paul says is the means of creation, present in that moment at the creation of it all, humbles himself and becomes obedient even to death on a cross. And coming all the way down to this unjust world, full of unjust systems, he comes and he does what no one could do for you. He paid your debt in full. He gave his perfectly pure and righteous life to cleanse you of all your impurities and to pay the consequence of your sin. You see, the justice of God is satisfied while the mercy of God pours out on sinners like you and me. This is the goodness and the grace of God at work. You see, this was the message that those early heroes in our faith especially present during the civil rights movement, proclaimed that Jesus, Jesus was able to unify humanity in a way that brought justice. Jesus was able to do something through his body and his blood that nothing else could affect, but they refused. They refused to leave it there. They knew that once Christ collided with a sinner and changed him completely, then that person went out changed. That person went out proclaiming with their life that his body was given and his blood was shed. And so therefore, they took on the likeness of this one as a humble servant, Humbly going into their spaces, into their families, into their communities, into their schools, into their workplaces, demonstrating that Jesus Christ changes from within and that changes from without. You see, one of the most beautiful first fruits in the lives of those who gave their lives to Jesus during that period where we call kind of the, the hippie movement, the Jesus movement, was that beautiful reconciliation that took places between the races. A clear demonstration that God was changing the heart. And those things that were lost in the garden were finally being restored. You see, I respect Professor Gurrier. I respect what he had to say about Rosa Parks, but he left out something very important. He left out God. He excluded God. He exploited one that God had redeemed, Rosa Parks, in order to make a different point. He had extracted God from the story. And that's not the full story of Rosa Parks. And that's not the full story of what God is doing in and through you. Believers, just like Rosa Parks, who recognized that his body was given for them. And she clung to the words that Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he spoke to the church. And so if you're here today, and this is the first time you've ever really considered what these things mean, I just ask that in this moment you would just watch and listen and consider what these things mean. But you that have said, Jesus Christ is Lord, I want you to take this bread. And I want you to hear these words. For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. That on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take in remembrance of Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, we are not called simply to eat bread and drink from small cups. We are called to demonstrate with our lives the body and the blood of Christ. We are called to manifest that power, the power of one to save and change completely. We are to manifest in New Orleans what it means to be reconciled to God and how that reconciliation to God transforms every human relationship because he's worthy. The one who gave his body and his blood is worthy. And so I invite everyone in this room to stand as we worship in song and response. You sing because of his worth.